Season 2 of the Olympic Mindset Podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning company. Fear of not achieving. Fear of letting people down. Fear of not paying me bills. Fear is my fuel. I, I would never say, I cannot do that. It was awful. I was shattered after. I was, I was in tears. I, was, I, I just could not believe what I'd done. Hello and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello, my name is Dominic Broad and thanks for joining me for episode 10 of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. I just want to take a second to thank Beth Tweddle for last week. It was a fantastic episode. We've had some amazing feedback and it was amazing to hear from somebody that has achieved so much in in such a short amount of time. And the one thing I really took away from Beth was that whenever you try something new, it's important to start again, to press that reset button, to take a moment to take stock of your skills and then to move forward. So a big thanks to Beth Tweddle, MBE, and hopefully you enjoyed today's episode. We were approached by the very impressive Divya O'Connor. So Divya runs the Charity CEO podcast. Now that podcast has been running at number one in the charity podcast rankings for quite a while now, and they've had some really, really interesting guests. Divya suggested we should make a very special collaboration episode between the Olympic Mindset podcast and the Charity CEO podcast. The reason for this is because she was due to interview the very impressive CEO of the Raheem Sterling Foundation, Chris Bird. Chris is the current CEO of the Raheem Sterling Foundation. He's the founder of EQ Esports and Gaming, one of the biggest esports companies in the UK. He's the founder of Bird Consultancy, one of the longest standing consultancy companies in the UK. He's the former Chief Operations Officer of Manchester City Football Club. And probably most impressively, he's the executive chair of the newspaper company he delivered as a child. Chris has come from very humble beginnings to go on and achieve phenomenal success in a range of different settings. Today, Divya and I speak to Chris about his journey, about the work he does in the charity sector, and his unlikely friendship with Manchester United manager, Sir Alex Ferguson. Hi Chris, how are you? Um, good. I'm well, good morning to both of you. And it's good to see you again, um, even though yeah. you are a Manchester City fan, and we've already discussed this. <laughs> I'm still a bit upset that you sold, signed some of our best players this summer as a Leeds fan. Um, so to start us off, Chris, I've got a quick question for you, if you don't mind. Um, as you know, I'm a massive football fan, and you led Manchester City through an amazing, really exciting period of football, the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. Um, if, if you could go back to that period and sign three players... Realistic players for Manchester City at the time, you know, bearing in mind you got to the Prem and where you were, who were the three you would have liked to have signed at that time? I think when we were in the when we were in the second division, um, obviously we, we we didn't have much money to play with, so it was it was it's not always a case of who did we want, it's who who would fit what we required. Was, we needed square pegs in square holes, and um, and and I think when we when we the, the people that we signed at the start, um, it'd be very, very difficult to say that 
would you would you do it any differently? Because you know, you look at one player that we signed alone from Bristol City, we paid four hundred thousand pounds for him, and if you looked in the Rothmans book of players, if you put your finger over his name and looked at the results, you probably thought we were signing a £10 million player because of his games-to-goals ratio, which was Sean Gota. I and absolutely Sean, love Sean. Yeah. Feed the goat and, and he will score. Yeah, absolutely. And Sean became a cult hero and still a cult hero today and, and you know, really was a major part of, of what we did at the club. And the great thing about Sean was even when we got to the Premier League and we were signing Nicholas Anelka, um, Ali Benabia, Al Berkovic, Sean still reached the absolute, you know, pinnacle of of, of his career um, and scored lots of goals. Um, so, you know, it's it's I think sometimes you got you always got to look at what the budget is, what your circumstances are, and it's square pegs in 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 in, in square holes. But I think when we went to the Premier League, there were players that we were really keen to try and get that we couldn't get. I mean, we, we got Nicholas and Elka. Um, but that one was of the a players, great signing, by the way. Nicholas it was, Elka yeah. That time. But there was there was uh, two other players that we tried to get. Uh, one was William Gallas um, as a centre centre half. Um, Hugo Ekiog was another one. Yeah. Um, and also Cafu. Um, so. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and I, I was very close. I, I was trying to um, convince Michael Reitziger to leave Barcelona and come and join us. And Michael came over and we had dinner, um, but it was, uh, I think, the, the the pull of leaving Barcelona was not for him. But you know, that they were the conversations we were having, which was great. <laughs> That's amazing. And I never knew you tried to sign Cafu. Cafu, yeah. by the way, for anybody listening, right back, World Cup winner, captain of Brazil for a long period, one of the best right backs ever to play in the and game. If you, and if you happen to watch the charity game um, that was on on ITV a, a, a few weeks ago, he played in that and looked as if he could walk on a pitch again today. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Job. Incredible. Lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, oh, that's amazing. And obviously, again, leading on from that, the the period that you were there, again, I've, I've already alluded to this, was a golden period that, you know, we had the Invincibles not long after, I think you're at Man City, you had the double, the treble, all within that period. So as, as, a, as a COO of Manchester City, you were obviously there when Keegan was there, you had Ferguson that came against you, Wenger was there, some real top managers. Was there any manager you admired at that time more than the others and why? Um, probably a lot of City fans, if they're listening to this, would hate me to say this, but Sir Alex. Um, I became friends with Sir Alex. We went to the World Cup together um, in 2006. He was very helpful to me um, when we were in the second division. We had some problems with our, our pitch on a particular night. that There was a bad storm and he, he sent his grounds people over to, to help. Um, and... Whenever United didn't have a game, he always came to watch City and, and have a meal with with his pals who were City fans. So um, just his mindset, you know, he, he was the Manchester United manager and there was nobody else he, he was interested about. Um, I'm sure if we were probably more successful at the time, he might not have helped me so much. But it, it was it was just the fact that the, 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 the Sir Alex that everybody sees, that, that aggressive... Um, Glaswegian who, who who was very single-minded but away from the camera 
and behind the scenes, there was there was a a genuinely um, nice man, but who had an incredible mindset. I mean, an incredible mindset. And you know, it's it's, it's strange. I, I spent the day yesterday with with Raheem Sterling, who, who I, I operate his foundation for him, and. There's a lot of those traits in Raheem. You know, he's 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 very focused. He's very single-minded. He's 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 very clear on what he wants to do with his football career. Um, but off the pitch, he's very family orientated. It's very much all about his family. But most importantly, it's all about the communities that he wants to help and and support. So, um, yeah, there's Sarah Alex was certainly one of those. Um, the other one who was who was just an amazing human being was Sir Bobby Robson. I just found him outstanding. Um, and then two others who who were very good to me, Mick McCarthy um, and David Moyes. You know, when I, when I, when I resigned from Man City, um, Mick McCarthy was one of the first people to, to drop me a, a, a text. And David Moyes, even when you don't see him for months or a couple of years, uh, you, if you bump into him in the street, he'll, he'll always come over and have a chat. That's great to hear. So mm. what would, what would a, a good leader look like to you? You've alluded to those guys being great, but break it down a little more for us. What would that good leader look like? Um, for me, you know, if I, if I look around the leaders that, that I've been lucky enough to learn from, um, it's, it's people that just have empathy. You know, they've, they've got to understand that everybody's very different and everybody's got different lives. And, and when somebody's sat in front of you, it's not always in their mind, they've got other things going on in their lives. And and sometimes you've got to try and understand that and break through that and realize that if someone's having a bad day or not performing terribly well, that it, it might not be just because of their talent or, or something that's happening in the work environment or the sporting environment. It could be outside of that. And psychologically, something is, is just holding them back. And I think a good leader recognises that in people. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, I have a um, a business that I'm, I'm CEO of, a Sports Tours International. Um, and Fred Doan, who owns Betfred, is the chairman and owner. Um, and Fred, I've worked with Fred since 2003. Um, Fred is 79, um, going on 25, because he, he just is an amazing character for his energy and and, and and the time he has with people. But the great thing about Fred is he surrounds himself with young people who have got a drive and determination. And he always says, you always you only need me when you've got a problem. He says, when things are good, you just crack on. He said, but I'm here if you need the money, you need the advice, you need the guidance. And he checks in all the time. He always checks in just to check you're okay. How, how are you doing? How's the family? How do you feel? Anything you need, um, that's a good leader. You know, I, I found to me detriment um, during a period where I was having really poor mental health problems, and my leadership was terrible because I was demanding stuff. I was I was too aggressive. I was I was I was I wasn't thoughtful. Um, it was about the job. It wasn't about the people. It was about the results. It wasn't about people's mindsets. Um, and I had a huge wake up call and realized that that's not the way to a, treat people. And, and it's also not good for the leader himself because it makes you ill. Um, it makes you underperform. Um, and it makes you a person that people don't want to work for. 
And you can't do that. And I think that, again, in leadership is you've got to be able to look at yourself and, and realise what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. But if you do anything wrong, find a way of correcting it. At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. So I was just going to say, Chris, that sounds like such a, a fascinating journey. And I'm really curious to hear a bit more about what's led you to where you are today. You mentioned that you are now the CEO of the Raheem Sterling Foundation. How did you get involved with that? Um, I was I was approached um, by a friend who was already talking to um, Raheem's agent um, and they were saying that they were, they were looking to try and create a foundation. Um, they didn't really know how to go about it, but Raheem had been wanting to do it for many years. Um, they approached me because they know that I've, I've done it before with, with my own foundation. So it, it was, it was a case of just really looking at what the objectives were that Raheem wanted to try and achieve. And I then went away and came up with this, this idea of, of the power of seven and the way um, the foundation could operate and the kind of work that we would do around social mobility, education, employment, creativity. Um, and then we presented it to Raheem and, and that's exactly what he wanted. He, he just said, yeah, you've got it. You, you, you understand exactly what I'm trying to do. When we'd launched it, I said, there we go. It's down to you guys now. And he said, what do we do next? So I said, well, you, you need someone to run it for you. So, you know, I'll open some doors. He went, no, he said, I want you to do it. And I couldn't say no, because the, the, the young man, he's 27 years old, and he is one of the most impressive young men and sports person, sports people I've ever met. And things are, are really going strong, and we've got some fantastic projects that we'll be rolling out over the next months. Are you able to tell us a bit more about those projects and plans? Yeah, um, we've got a project that we're going to be working on with the University of Manchester, um, King's College London, which is about bringing young people from deprived areas um, into university and also young people that have got talent, but they don't know how to channel that talent. They need the opportunity because everybody's got a talent, but not everybody gets the opportunity. And that's what we're about. We're about opening that door and, and getting people through that door, um, because that's that's what's missing in, in a lot a lot of communities and, and society today. Is there's a lot of talented young people out there, but for some reason, you know, this country is as great as we all think it, it is at times. It's really bad at, at, at pointing opportunities at young people from deprived areas. Chris, this is amazing work you're doing alongside Raheem Sterling. Um, obviously, it sounds like a lot of this work is going in around the kind of the Manchester area. Um, as you know, I'm Director of Education across the Midlands and I'm from Wales. So I guess my question is, can we access these amazing facilities, these amazing opportunities elsewhere in the UK? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're working with the school side. We're, we're actually partnering with R. Kelvin. Uh, the answer is yes. It's, it's the focus at the moment is Brent, Manchester, Kingston, Jamaica. But as we, you know, we're, we're only year one of, of the foundation, but as we move into future years, um, this will become more of a, a national and international um, charity, surely because Raheem is a, a national and international figurehead. Yes. And Chris, talking about Kingston, Jamaica, I know that the registered name of the foundation is actually 1692. Tell us about the relevance of 1692. I mean, the, the story goes, you know, that there was a um, a huge disaster in, in in Jamaica and Kingston was founded as, as, a, as a city. That was in 1692. Raheem is, he loves the country of his birth. So it, it seemed, you know, apt for, for him to create his agency, which is the 1692 agency, and the foundation um, to also be called the 1692 foundation. But we sort of promote it and talk about it as the Raheem Sterling Foundation. Very much when you see everything about what we're doing, um, it all fits together. It's a nice story. Indeed, hence I asked the question. Um, Chris, you talked about empathy being sort of key to a leadership mindset. And I'm very conscious that the work that you have done with the EQ eSports um, organization is also really connecting around emotional intelligence and empathy and also about creating sort of pathways to social mobility. Tell us about how those different areas of work intersect for you. I guess the the, the EQ side of things, the emotional intelligence was was something that I've always I've always held on to as a person because you know, I, I've, I've not got a great IQ. So I needed something to get to to say to people. I've got I've got something with a Q in it, um, but mine's an EQ, um, and and the emotional intelligence is is very much. Um, I, I I try and describe it as as being, you know, if this is if this is empty, the heart. If the heart is empty, what's in the head doesn't really matter, um, because I I I just don't see in the people that I work with and the people that I see. Um, on a day-to-day basis, that if there's no passion for what they're doing, if they don't understand about how emotions can make things a whole lot better or make people work a lot harder or, or, or think more creatively, um, then you're going to get nowhere. You, know, you really need to have the passion. And, and you know, people listening to this podcast will say, what a load of rubbish. You know, what about the great accountants and all the... Yeah, that's fine. That, that's fine. But when you look at the people that really get things done, that really inspire us all, they've got an emotional intelligence because they they know how they can reach people in a different way rather than just in an analytical way or a, or a you know a debating way. You can debate, but you can be very analytical about it. You can see from um, hustings at the moment, both Sunak and Truss have zero emotional intelligence zero Keir Starmer has zero emotional intelligence because everything is about it's fact it's a point I'm driving it home but you don't feel it from the heart you don't really get it that these guys are living every little bit of the sentences that they're passing over to us it's not they're just rolling out information that's the difference Emotional intelligence is about really reaching inside people and, and making them feel that I want to go on this journey with them. So 
when I created the esports business, it was about I saw what was going on in esports, you know, back in 2014, 2015. Um, and at the time I was on the board at JD Sports and I convinced JD to get involved in the esports, um, which they did, and, and now uh, doing a lot with um, XL in, in London. Um, but I wanted to take it a bit further and not just look at esports as being something where kids game and, and participate in, in tournaments. I wanted to show them that you can get a good education through esports. Serial Mash by Too Simple is your online library for reading and comprehension, packed with over 140 books and growing. With a new chapter every week of term, follow-up activities, comprehension and guided reading resources, all the hard work is done for you. It can be accessed anywhere and readers can choose to customise visual properties and toggle reading audio to suit their exact requirements. When children read a serial mash book, it's automatically recorded in their online journal, and any other reading can easily be added as well. As an educator, you get access to useful data such as reading frequency and minutes read for individuals, classes or groups. To start your free trial of serial mash, head to twosimple.com forward slash Olympic Mindset. It's too simple. You've touched on a really interesting point for me there, Chris, which is authenticity, being an authentic leader, believing in what you're saying, and obviously using that to inspire and empower people. I've taught and, and worked in areas of deprivation also, and I think sometimes what we're guilty of is failing to inspire people in those areas. Sometimes it's easy just to measure people's success by a certain metric or a certain statistic. You know, I refer to your story, market trader to owning a gaming company. Sometimes we need to tap into that more and speak to people that have gone on to have extreme success from, you know, more humble beginnings, because I think that is the kind of route we should try to emulate. Been a lot of work done around closing the gap, closing the attainment gap. What can we do to support children in deprived areas? It hasn't really been achieved in the last 25 years, despite a lot of money and a lot of time being allocated to it. In your opinion, as somebody that's gone on to have extreme success from extremely humble beginnings, where do we go from here? That's, that's, that's where the IQ and the EQ, you know, the people that are driving those statistics are very, very clever people. You know, they, they've been through the system, they've worked hard to learn what they learn and, and, and have all the tools to, to be able to try out the, the statistics and everything. But you know, if, I, if, I take, if I take somebody down to court and, 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 and put them with the guys at the hideout and, and, and meet the CEO, Adam Farica and his team and Joe Amos down there um, and listen to them for an hour about what really needs to be done and what really is happening. They'd find it's a different world than what they're talking about. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great trotting out the stats and saying, we're going to level up. Do you know what? Leveling up is just, is just, you know, a sentence that they drop out. You know, again, I'm going to kick into politicians where you know they they turn up to different areas and they think they think it's really really the right thing to do. That I'll take my tie off and my jacket off and I roll my sleeves up and that makes me look like I'm getting the job done. It doesn't because we can <laughs> see through it. Mute you. <laughs> 
Well, it, it, it taps into that passion aspect and, you know, talking about aspiration and mindset. And Chris, you know, you're you're clearly really keen on creating pathways for young people along the lines of employment and social mobility. And I think the aspirational mindset is a really important part of that. Um, and I know, Dominic, you were keen to explore this a bit more in terms of the Olympic mindset uh, and that in order to achieve uh, and be a leader and be a top performer, mindset is so so key uh, and I wonder Chris if you can talk a, a bit more about that in, in this context having, having the the mindset to to just get on and do things is that what you're asking me yes I think what Divi is getting at is uh, the title of my podcast is the Olympic Mindset Podcast and it's named that not because I believe only Olympians have this key to success it's because in my experience of working with top level athletes and top level Olympians there seems to be a certain number of traits or characteristics that they have that have allowed them to achieve extreme success. Now, in season two, this is why I'm speaking with yourself and with Divya today, we've started to discover that this mindset is transferable. So my question to you would be, in your experience, are there any elements to a mindset that would allow you to go on to be successful? Well, I think you know, the, the one thing that I, I said earlier is about, you know, having role models and, and mentors. And the one thing that I, I always, I've always looked at is sometimes I, I, I stop and look at what I've been doing and or, or what I may have achieved and think, how, how, how have I got there? Because, you know, I was, I was born in Withingshaw, brought up on a, on a council estate called Hattersley, um, comfortable home life, lovely mum and dad, brother, um, but nothing special um, in terms of what we had. Um, and I was pretty average at sport, but I enjoyed it. I, I played with my heart, um, probably why I got sent off so much. Um, but you, know, you, you get involved in stuff, and, and, and I think it's, it's, it's that passion for getting involved. You know, I'd try anything. And then when I started to, to work and go on the markets, I met my first real mentor, um, a guy called Derek Fawcett, who, who, who just taught me the value of communicating and, and money and, and service and making sure that the customers are happy. And if the, if the customer was unhappy, what you needed to do to make them happy again. Um, and I guess at the time, I was just going through, I, you, know, you just get on and do it. You know, I'm 13 years old, for God's sake. You know, it's, like, it's, it's not something I'm used to, but I'm doing it. And I guess all those stages that I went through in my career, um, there was always somebody who I looked up to that just gave me that little bit of knowledge all the time that subconsciously has stuck in my mind. And when I get into situations, it, it almost comes to the fore then that, you know, Bert Tatlock, who was my sales director at Piccadilly Radio, what would he have done, you know, um, John Wardle at JD Sports, what would he have done? Dennis Stewart at Man City, what would he have done? And all these people, Fred Doan, you know, Barry Hearn, you know, great people who at, at times in my life just showed me different ways of, of handling different situations. Not in a, they weren't coaching me, they weren't teaching me, but just by their actions, I was looking at, and, and it's almost, I would say to people, I've had a 40 year apprenticeship. With, with some of the, the greatest leaders um, this country's ever seen um, that probably a lot of people don't know know who they are. Um, 
oh boy, what what a, what a learning experience that is. And I think the mindset of of the champion is is that mindset of you you can't don't say no. There's no there's no there's no chance I say no to anything. It's how can I do it? How can I find a way of doing it? And if I'm an Olympian, can I go faster? Can I jump higher? Can I jump longer? Can I run longer? You know, it's it's those kind of things. But they don't say I can't do it. They say, how can I do it? Find me, show me the way of actually being able to achieve what I need to achieve. Same in business. I'm never. I, I would never say I cannot do that. I'll go away and find a way of bloody doing it. And we'll have teachers listening to this who maybe want to create change or to start a company. We'll have students listening to this. We'll have people in business in the charity sector. You've had success in five or six different areas, media, PR. Obviously, your consultancy firm is still going on. Football, e-games, JD Sports. I forgot about that till you mentioned it. All of these different things. What, Chris, have you ever discovered what drives you? What's your purpose? Where does this passion come from? What are the things that get you out of bed in the morning and make you think, I'm going to tackle this day, I'm going to tackle this challenge? Where does that come from? One word. One word. And it's and it's probably a word that a lot of people would say, well, that's crazy. Fear. Fear of not achieving. Fear of letting people down. Fear of not paying me bills. Fear of of disappointing people. I, I I just it's just something that I always say. Fear is my fuel because um, and it's not great fuel to have. You know, I, I would never recommend people to 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 go around go uh, go into something the way I've gone into it because you know when I when I set up on my own in nineteen ninety. I didn't do it with any money. I remortgaged the house. Um, it was it was skin of the teeth kind of stuff. And everything I've done, I've always took a chance. Um, and I think I've always took a chance because it's the fear of what happens if that chance I take doesn't doesn't work. And that's what's driven me. Um, has it has it helped me? Yes, in achieving things. Has it damaged me? Absolutely, physically. Mentally, emotionally, um, but that's the way I'm wired, unfortunately. Um, but I think in 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 a in a perverse way, a lot of people just need that little bit of trepidation and 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 fear in their lives if they're going to do something that's going to test them. You're not telling me that, yeah, you know, Usain Bolt when he's when he's on this the 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 start line of a hundred meter Olympic final that he's, he's there thinking, I've got this. I've got, he's not, he's thinking I have to get this because what's my legacy going to be? The footballer who goes on the pitch, who's not scoring. He's got that fear. Some it's, 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 it's a bit perverse. I think sometimes that when you talk about the fear, but for me, it's it's it gives you the edge. It gives it keeps the sharpness there. And I guess you know I'm 16 in in February, and I think from day one of when I started in media in 1982, um, I don't think I've ever lost that sharpness because I am feared to death of not achieving something.
This episode of the Olympic Mindset is sponsored by Hue, makers of colourful, affordable visualisers and animation kits, perfect for creative teaching, homeschooling and remote working. Described by many teachers as a complete game changer, Hue's high-quality USB document cameras have won awards worldwide and they are also STEM.org authenticated. Hue cameras make it quick and easy to share work, record lessons or save time and money by not having to photocopy. The manual focus and flexible neck means that you can show even the smallest objects and nobody misses out because they can't see. Follow at Hue Cameras on social media for news, fun and giveaways. And for a limited time offer of 10% discount, please enter the code OLYMPIC10 at the HueHD.com shop. Chris, just taking that concept of fear a little further then, because I'm conscious that, you know, just this morning, for example, Ofgem regulators announced that the energy price cap is going to go up to £3,560 or something like that. And there's, there's a lot of fear and anxiety sort of more broadly um, in society and the economy. And there may be many young people kind of looking at the state of things today and, and genuinely being fearful and not even knowing how to sort of take a first step. So two questions for you, Chris. One that I wanted to ask you earlier, but I'll ask it now. What would you say has been your professional superpower um, that fear aside has really kind of helped you get to that next step? And do you have practical advice that you could give, say, the young people who, for example, the Raheem Sterling Foundation may be looking to, to serve and to help? I mean, what are some practical things you would you would tell young people today to combat that fear? Just before I go on to that, the, the, the one thing that I would, again, the politicians, if... if I hope some of them are going to listen to this, but they need that fear. They need that fear. And I don't think not one of them has got it because they should be looking to having a fear of who they're letting down. The people that are going to really suffer, that they won't know the names of, they don't know where they live, they probably never meet them. But if I'm a politician today, I would have that fear in my stomach in my mind, in my heart, because you're letting people down and you can't do that. And you've got the power to change it. But politically, it's not the done thing to just, you know, when you see them rolling their sleeves up, really roll your sleeves up and get and get and have that fear in your belly and make a change. Sorry. Just the way I feel about politicians is they ain't got enough fear. Um, in terms of the, the young people, the, the, you said about superpower. I, I ain't got no superpower, but what I had was a mum and dad that taught me about having a work ethic. Uh, I get up in the morning and I go to work and I earn my money and I do it in in the best way I possibly can and I do it honestly and openly um, and I pay me way and I pay me taxes and I do the right thing. Um, that's the way I was brought up. So it's not a superpower, it, it, it's just the way I was brought up. If you've got a work a good work ethic and people see you putting a real shift in, then you will get on. If you're not getting on and you're working hard, then you're working for the wrong people. So change your job. Chris, can I ask you a quick question? Sorry, I if it's too personal, I don't mind you saying no. I know you started working for Man City at first. You did a bit of work for free before obviously leading on to the COO. The reason I'm asking you this is because I was recently talking to uh, a friend and they wanted to go for a promotion, but 
the promotion didn't offer a lot of money and they kept saying, oh, well, there's not much more money. There's no point. And I was trying to explain that sometimes it's about the opportunity and being on the right ladder rather than about the money. 100%. How important would you say that is to somebody trying to get ahead and make a career? Do you know what? I'll, I'll tell you a true story. I was I worked in a factory when I was um, 17 and the, the, the foreman of the factory was my dad. Um, and he made sure that I worked in all the worst parts of the factory because he, he never believed in favoritism, um, which was very kind of him, but he taught me a lesson. And, you know, I, st- I do that with my kids today. Um, but I w- I'd applied for a job at the reporter newspaper as, as a trainee sales representative. This is the paper I now own. Um, and I was on the phone to the manager who was offering me the job. And he offered me the job, and it was £20 a week less than what I was on. And my dad was stood next to me on the phone. And I, and I put my hand over the receiver, and I turned around to my dad. And this is a guy who, Irish immigrant, worked in, on the railway, on the factory, but, you know, wasn't, wasn't a sort of a um, – he, he wasn't a big businessman or a big thinker. He was just hard worker who was sensible. And he said, take the job. So I said, 20 quid a week less, Dad. He went, take the job. It's a great opportunity. I'd always say it. You know, at a certain age, you shouldn't always be thinking about how much money am I going to get? You should be thinking about where will this take me? And that's why with City, I took the work for free for six months because I felt I could make a difference. And if I'd done it after six months and not earned anything and didn't get anything, you know what? I still got the experience. Did you have another job at the same time? I had my PR company. So you're working two jobs? I was I was doing everything I could do to make sure that, you know, I paid my bills at home, but I was looking to the future with the football. I love that. I love that mentality. I think he's really... Davia and I were discussing this as well the, the other day. And again, another personal thing that I, I want to bring up, if you don't mind, the message you put out on LinkedIn about vulnerability. Both of us both of us were so impressed with that. And I know I said brave and you yeah. said it isn't brave. I think it is. I think it is because I, I tell you what, I was brought up in a way that, you know, you don't share those feelings. You don't share those emotions. You know, if you're going to be a leader, you should always be stoic, always be level, always be the person that people look to. Never really show too much fear. And to see somebody with so much success, I found it quite inspiring, actually, and brave. I, 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 just, I just had to, to uh, I mean, I did, there's a, another video on on um, on LinkedIn or, or on, on online um, where I, I made a speech around about 2016, I think it was, where I, I spoke openly about my mental health for the first time to a, to a big audience. Um, and it was, it, was, it was at a time where... Um, I, I'd really made some big mistakes in my in my personal life um, in, in around about 2010, 2011, and and things started to spiral, and um, and I needed to change my life. I needed to to realise what I'd done to my wife, to my kids, to my family, um, and I, I and I needed to take a, a stronger look at what I was doing, um, and I realised it wasn't just my family I was hurting; it was my colleagues people that work for me, my, my clients. You know, I was, I was wearing all these different masks to try and get through the day and, and do different things and think that I'm achieving things. Um, whilst behind the scenes, I'm dismantling things. Um, 
but not consciously knowing that I'm dismantling it. And so when, when I realized that and I went, I thought, you know what, I've got to go and talk about this. And instead of thinking, I'll go and talk to, you know, a, a, a psychologist, a professional, a, a counselor, I thought, no, I'll stand up in front of 200 people and I'm going to tell them. It was awful. It was, it, I was shattered after I was, I was in tears. I was, I, I just could not believe what I'd done. But I'm glad I did it because when I went back to the office, um, I noticed one of the guys that worked for me, was, he was sat over by the window and he, he, he seemed to be frozen in time. And I went over to him. I said, are you okay? He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, just don't, just not feeling it at the moment. I said, let's go for a cup of coffee. Went across the road for a cup of coffee. And I said, what's going on? And he, and he, he couldn't tell me. I said, are you, are you on any medication at all? And he went, why do you say that? I said, I'm going to mention one word to you. Sertraline. And he went, yeah, I'm taking sertraline. I went, yeah, so am I. I said, you're not on your own now. We're going to change the way you work. We're going to change you the way you do your job um, because something's not happening for you. And I feel responsible for that. And I need to help you. Um, and then I started to open up to the office and I spoke to the office and told them all about what I've been going through. And I want them to start talking to each other. And we started to have um, my mental health team put together. So everybody, you know, was a mental health, um, what do they call them? first aider. Um, so we did that. Um, you know, just, just checking in on each other. And I just felt a big change in, in terms of just understanding that you've got to understand yourself more um, because then you'll understand what you're doing to everybody else around you. And I was doing a lot of damage. Um, and hopefully I'm repairing some of that now, um, but at least I recognise it. Um, but I also recognise it in others. So, you know, it's it's you want to make sure that you try and pass that on. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Chris. I think it comes back to what you were talking about earlier in the conversation about empathy and authenticity in leadership uh, and how that really helps bring the best out of people. And if you were to look back now, Chris, to that young boy who was on the phone, you know, d debating whether to take that job um, or not, I mean, is there anything you, you would say to yourself? You know, what advice would you give to yourself looking back now? You know, the, the advice probably is, is the same as I'm always telling myself today is have a go. You know, it's, it's I have the fear. So, you know, it's the fear of, of oh, it's, it's, the, it's the fear of not knowing. It's the fear of can I do it? It's the fear of what will people think? Feel the fear and don't do it yeah. anyway. What's the worst that can happen? I get it wrong. Okay, try again. Fred Doan always says when he when he talks to young people and he talks about setting up your own business, he said, "Don't worry about it. If you fail and it goes wrong, try again. If he does it again, try again." And he he, he says it about six times. Is what I'm trying to say is, don't give up. If you feel you've got something. Keep trying it, and it'll happen. And to put you on the spot now, Chris, again, three things for me, please. So you've had an amazing life. You know, you've you've done some phenomenal things. You've had your ups, you've had your downs. What would be... A lot of downs. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's important to acknowledge that, I think. So many people, you only ever hear the good stuff, and that's why earlier when you mentioned fear, it was such a kind of 
it kind of hit me in the gut, if I'm honest. It's not very often I speak to somebody and they say their motivation is fear, and that's something I can really relate to, uh, which is for a conversation another time. But we'll end with the question from me, if you don't mind, that if you could give us some advice to our listeners, three takeaways for leadership and life, what would they be after everything you've been through? Wow. Um, I don't think I'm qualified to do that, but I'll I'll... I'll, I'll tell you what I think in, in, from a personal point of view. Well, Chris, if it's not very good, we're just going to cut it. Okay. <laughs> well, you can dub somebody else's advice over mine. Do that, <laughs> do, do that. you can do it at do the that. end. She's going to just give her... Get, Chris, get, Chris, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, I'll get Fred <laughs> to do it and just put my mouth moving like that. Um, I think that the three things that I, I've, I've, have stayed with me, you know, from, from being a young lad right the way through and watching my dad working and, and my mum working and, and the people that I've been around is don't be frightened of work because you, know, you put that work effort in and, and, and people will recognise it. There's people that will take advantage of it, but they're the people that you just leave behind. You know, they're the people that you don't want to work for. But the really good employers or entrepreneurs or advisors that see that you are willing to get up and go and work, they'll make sure you get on. And I think, you know, there's, there's so much in young people's minds at the moment where um, they don't always feel as if you've got to put a lot of work in. It's, well, I've got these qualifications, so I should be able to get this. I, I worked from nine till five, so that should be enough. Um some people might not like to hear this, but work doesn't stop at nine to five. You've always got to be thinking. You've always got to be planning. You've always got to be creating. Because when you finish at five and you go off, you might go and have a beer or a pizza with your mates. You still want to be thinking because when you arrive back in the office at nine, the next day, take something with you. Take an idea. Take a concept. Take a passion that has come through the night. And it's there for you. Don't just turn up. As a sports person, you can't just turn up on the start line. You can't just turn up on the pitch. You can't turn up on the in the ring. Anthony Joshua fought his heart out on Saturday night. He didn't just turn up. And you saw what that young man felt and the way he talked. And a lot of people criticise him. I have zero criticism for AJ because that was a man with a passion, a desire, he wanted to achieve, and he failed. But he tried everything. But do you know what? That young man will get back in the ring again, and he'll go again, and he'll try and win, because he's got the fear. The fear of not being recognised, the fear of failing, the fear of losing, and the fear of not achieving what he set out to do. So in terms of those, those, those three things, You've, you have to put the work in. And then when you're, on, when, when you're there, you've got to believe in what you're doing. If, you, if you're working on something that you really don't believe in, then get out of it. You've got to love it. You've got to believe it. You know, if you don't love the 100 metres and you think you're going to run the 100 metres, you're going to lose. Go and get the pole vault. It's not for you. You've got to believe in it. And then the last thing is... For God's sake, be yourself. Be authentic. Don't try and be something you're not. Don't use words that you're not used to. 
You know, swear if you have to. Don't be be yourself, because people buy people. They don't buy frauds. That's it. Thank you, Chris. And on that really authentic and passionate note, this has been such a great conversation. You know, thank you for being so candid and vulnerable with us. And thank you, Dominic, uh, for joining me as co-host. It's been really good fun. Cheers, Dom. Yeah, guys, honestly, and Chris, thank you so much. That was a... I enjoyed it. Thank you. Inspirational chat. And Divya, thanks for setting this up. Really enjoyed it. I'd love to keep you in touch. It'd be great to keep you in touch. Definitely. Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning company. Thank you very much for joining me for this very special collaboration episode with Divya O'Connor from the Charity CEO Podcast. If you haven't already, check it out. It's available on all podcast providers. At the end of last week's episode, you'll remember that I introduced you to Tony Faulkner, the Managing Director at VSI Executive Education. Tony spoke to us about a little about his past as a professional footballer and the exciting things they've got coming up with VSI. Tony's very, very kindly agreed to come back this week and speak to us in a little more detail around the primary function of the brain learning about maximum reward and minimizing danger and explaining how this can impact on our behavior. So I hope you enjoy this slight addition to today's episode and thanks for joining us this week at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. (laughs) Tony, how are you? (laughs) Uh, I'm good, Dom. How are you? I'm all right. As you know, I've been speaking to Chris Bird today and uh, yeah, the interview, another mank, another man city person. So obviously somebody from your past. The episode is titled Fear is My Fuel. Um, It was one of the quotes from the podcast, and he spoke a lot about how fear of not being able to pay his bills, fear of letting people down, fear of failure was actually quite a significant driving force in his career. And a lot of people talk about failure being a bad thing and risk and reward. And I know you and I spoke earlier in the week around your, you know, your knowledge and background in understanding the primary function of the brain, maximizing reward, minimizing danger. So I thought this was an amazing opportunity to talk to you around that field. Yeah, I've always been interested in how the brain drives performance. And I suppose um, in my role at Blackburn Rovers, as in my performance role in the early to mid 2000s, I became very intrigued with regards to how the players functioned, which led to the the behaviour that they exhibited during certain situations. So if they'd had a disagreement with the coach, if they were having a bad run run of form, if there was an incident going on at home, the, the primary role of the brain from a functioning perspective is to maximise reward and minimise danger. And if we just take that down to its its very basic example. Um, We can use you and I. Um, We walk into the room. We've never met each other before. We shake hands. We say hello. Subconsciously, our brains are either going into a, a reward or a threat scenario situation and that maybe is as simple as you looking at my shoes thinking oh I'm not not so sure about the shoes he's wearing it could put you into what we call a threat mode within the brain and what that means is that then you become a little bit more emotional and I'm not talking about um, irrational emotional aspects here but you become a little bit more emotional a little bit more frustrated disrupted in your thinking not overly confident so therefore your whole thought process is impacted to some extent in a negative way 
Now, on the other hand, if you and I walk into the room, we shake hands and straight away, there's some type of connection there. And again, that's going on subconsciously in the back of our mind. Then it puts you into a reward state within the brain. And when you're in a reward state, you feel calmer, you feel more calculated, um, you're a lot more confident in who you are, how you behave, what you say. So therefore, your thought process is, is more aligned to where you want to be and also where you want to get to. So just having that simple awareness of how the brain functions at that level enables you to work smarter and be more focused and productive, stay cool under pressure, and probably the hardest challenge of all, be more impactful with regards to how you influence people. Do you have any tips for us, Tony, if we do find ourselves in that situation where we're feeling threat or feeling worried and we're struggling to avoid those situations? Is there a tip that you know of that we could apply and get ourselves back on a level? The brain is constantly going through around about five social experiences daily, and these are treated as survival issues. And it's the same um, across genders and it's the same across cultures. And this model is called the SCARF model, i.e. a scarf that you wear. SCARF stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness and fairness. And when you're looking to uh, collaborate or influence with individuals, they may be your peers, they may be colleagues, they may be competitors. If you are able to get a better understanding of their drivers, then you're able to get onto a level with them so that you can start having those more impactful conversations. So a, a simple example status, some people are driven by a level of perceived status. So if you remove their status, then ultimately you put their brain into a threatened state. If their brain is in a threatened state, then they're not in the zone to be able to perform anywhere near to their to their maximum. But I'll give you a real world example. An executive PA that used to work for our business a couple of years ago, she needed certainty. And I wasn't able to give it to her as much as was required because the business activities change day to day. But quite quickly, I then realized that but the lack of certainty that I was able to give her meant that her performance was impacted. So what I needed to do at the start of the week was take my time to deliver a certain amount of certainty to her throughout the course of the week so that she was able to put, get herself into that reward state. And once she's in that reward state, she's in a better place to deliver. Just touching on autonomy, I'm a type of person you know, if you want that wall building over there, then come to me and say, Tony, I want this wall building in six weeks time. Um, I want it from there to there, you know, off you go. I'm here if you need me. Once I've been told what to do and given the guidelines, leave me to it. Give me full, full autonomy. If you try and micromanage me and remove my autonomy, then my brain will go into a threatened state and I'm not going to be in the best position to perform for you. Anyone can Google and look into. There's a very simple test that you can do to get a better feel for where you sit on that continuum, because that's very much what it is. But once again, having an understanding of, of how you function in that model 
enables you to then better position yourself to perform. And if you are struggling to collaborate or influence with a peer or a colleague or a competitor, being able to get a greater understanding of where you think they may sit on that particular model then enables you to adapt your approach to get the results you're looking to achieve. High performing entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, um, they don't function well with certainty. Um, they get bored. So if they get up in the morning and they know that I've got to be in the office at nine o'clock and you know, be in my car for seven and make the same old journey and I'm going to take this call and attend that meeting and then I'll leave the office at five to make my way home, that level of certainty actually turns them off. It doesn't stimulate them. They become bored. So a lot of entrepreneurs don't require a, a lot of certainty because not knowing exactly what's going to happen and when is what gives you the stimulus to be creative, is what gives, it gives them the adrenaline to get out of bed and make things happen and so on and so forth. So, so as I say, this, this is very much a continuum and we, we sit on this continuum and we will have, we will score higher for want of a better analogy in certain areas. And once we know what they are, we're then able, we're, we're better positioned to find the role where we can, we, we can perform in. Fascinating stuff and very helpful for anybody working from home, trying to find out more about themselves or working with a team. Uh, Tony, is, is this anything we'll cover on the course by any chance? Yeah, so on the course, on the CEO programme, we, we, we touch on um, aspects of neuroscience and how it drives behaviour. Um, and on our sporting directors programme that we deliver, there is a, a neuroscience thread which um, brings all the modules together. So I do think that if you are in a, in a leadership management role, then having a level of understanding with regards to how the brain does function at a subconscious level can only go to make you much more impactful, particularly in the modern world we're living in now. Well, lovely to talk to you. Have a good evening and see you next week. Cheers, Dom. See you soon.